So let's go to the uh, first epistle of Peter. And I, I know that Pastor John has been in, in 1 Peter. I only discovered that uh, a few days ago, or a week or so ago. And, um, and I've been uh, teaching in Peter. Um, I, we've been uh, in, in 1 Peter for eight weeks, and we're in verse 8 uh, back home. And um, I, I've really been gripped by uh, the, the, the uh, epistle of Peter. Um, and so I, I did want to share some of that with you. There are two things that have really gripped my heart in these last uh, months. And the one is Peter's epistle and its relevance to us today. And the other is John the Baptist's message, uh, which I'm not going to speak about uh, today or uh, even on... Uh, I, I may speak on it somewhere on the trip. But uh, th these two things have really gripped my heart. And so even though I have spoken on this before recently, uh, it really is heavy on my heart, and I wanted to share that with you this morning. Uh, and I'm specifically going to speak on verse 1, but let's read uh, verses 1 through 12. 1 Peter 1 uh, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. Now I'm sure Pastor John has done a good job and I've listened to a little bits of his recordings here and there. Uh, introducing you to the letter, um, and the letter is written in a classical Greek style. Uh, it begins with who's writing, to whom he is writing, uh, and then giving the, uh, the purpose of the letter. Uh, and, and we follow a very similar style, well, we, we used to when we were still writing letters. Today we don't do letters anymore. But when you used to write a letter, you would, uh, you would have your, your address at the top, so who it is from, and of course a little different because we'd sign it at the bottom. And then we would, uh, if it was a formal letter, it would say, re, this is the subject. And then it would say, to, uh, have the dear John, or whatever it was. And then it has the letter. And, and uh, Peter's letter is, is very much the same. So it begins... And it tells us who is writing, Peter, an apostle. Uh, he's telling us who he is writing to, and he gives us an introduction. 
and the introduction covers uh, more verses, but verse 1 really is both the uh, source of the letter, the uh, recipients of the letter, and the summary of the letter, the re-part. What is this letter all about? It's all in verse 1. And if you look at verse 1, you say, well, I don't see that there. And I pray that we will see that uh, this morning. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So, so you, you can see who's writing. You can see who he's writing to. And, of course, that's the question. Who is he writing to? Uh, I'll answer that in a moment. But the, the, first, uh, the other question, then, is what is the book about? Where is that in verse 1? Can you see that in verse 1? And I'm pretty sure you'll say, no, I don't see that in verse 1. And that's what I'm going to try and show you this morning. So now the question is, who is he writing to? And he says to the pilgrims of the dispersion, and he mentions a few places there. Um, I can't always remember them. Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, these places are part of what was the Roman province Asia or Asia Minor. Uh, today we know it as Turkey. So don't, when you hear Asia Minor in the New Testament, like in the book of Revelation, don't think of China or those places. Uh, this is Turkey. And so uh, remember Paul had established uh, the church of Ephesus uh, down on the southern part of Turkey, and then there were seven other churches that are listed in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, uh, letters written to those seven churches. They're all established from Ephesus, uh, and they're all in the southern part. But these churches are in the rest of Turkey. We don't know who established them, and it's not important. I'm not going to get into that this morning. So he's saying then that these are pilgrims of the dispersion in those places. Now, the learned people will argue about what, uh, who, what dispersion is he talking about. This word dispersion is, is one that is um, uh, applied in different ways today. And um, uh, we, we also use the word diaspora. And um, we, we, I don't hear it much in South Africa, uh, but there is a South African diaspora. The word means to be dispersed or to be spread. And so there are people here that this morning, and I, as, we, as Pastor John introduced me, we are part of the dispersion or the diaspora of South Africans who have been spread throughout the world through various situations, things that are happening. But in Zimbabwe particularly, when, and we have a ministry in Zimbabwe, and they speak there all the time about the diaspora, because, because uh, a, a huge portion of the population in, in Zimbabwe have been dispersed, displaced, pushed out of the country by poverty and uh, lack of work and all sorts of problems. And so they move to South Africa and they go to England and, and Europe and wherever they can uh, to find work uh, in order to support their families and they send the money back. And so uh, when you go to Zimbabwe and you use the word diaspora, uh, they immediately think of their friends and everybody has friends and everybody has family that is somewhere overseas. And by the way, South Africa is very much the same. Uh, a lot of the older people, like my age, uh, have children who are overseas. There is not a single family in South Africa who don't have 
friends or, fa or, or immediate family who are overseas. In my case, I'm overseas and my, friend, my, 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 my children are back there. My grandchildren and my children are in South Africa. And so that's the dispersion. Now when you go to the New Testament, we have the common understanding of the dispersion is that this is the Jewish diaspora. The Jews that were spread uh, throughout the world through a series of things coming from the Assyrian captivity, then the Babylonian captivity, and then the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And as a result of that, the Jews were spread throughout the world. And so we still have the Jewish diaspora today. The Jews you find in every nation all over the world, you'll find Jewish people living, and so they are dispersed, and they are, there is the Jewish diaspora. That had other phases, and so... Uh, under um, uh, Claudius, uh, who was the Caesar before Nero, uh, there was another diaspora. The Jew, many Jews had, had found, found themselves in Rome, and they were uh, living in Rome. Uh, Claudius didn't like them, and so he evicted all of the Jews out of Rome. Um, and uh, we find that in the, in the Bible, because in the book of Acts, you find that Paul goes to Ephesus, and he finds two people there a husband and a wife, and they are tent makers, just like him. And their names are? Priscilla and Aquila. And it says specifically that they are there because Claudius had evicted all the Jews from Rome. Now, they were Jewish Christians, uh, but they were evicted because they were Jews. And that changes the church in Rome, and there's a, whole, uh, there's a lot of important stuff about that which helps us to understand the book of, the book of Romans. And then when Claudius uh, died, the edict that he had issued died with him. It was, it was something that was the nature of the law was uh, only limited to his life. And so when Claudius died and Caesar, uh, Nero became Caesar, uh, then the Jews were able to return. So, so, we, so the common interpretation for the book of Peter, and sorry I'm really making a long introduction and I really need to get to the point, but I want to give you the background. So, um, so the common interpretation or, or one of the most popular interpretations is when he's writing to the dispersion, he is writing to Jews, uh, Jewish Christians specifically, uh, who have been spread throughout the world. But then there's a different opinion, and that is that these are not Jewish Christians, but they are just Christians. Christians who, because of Nero and because of other situations, have been spread. And you remember that there was a major dispersion, diaspora, of Christians in the book of Acts. Can you remember that? The book of Acts, the church begins and there's 3,000 saved one day, 5,000 saved another day. So we have at least 8,000 people in the church and obviously many, many more even. And they're just having a glory time. It's just wonderful. Uh, they have a permanent revival. They have 12 apostles who had walked with Jesus, uh, 12 apostles who were performing miracles and, and, and were, uh, were called by God in a, a very unique way. And so it was a wonderful time. But they'd forgotten something. They'd forgotten that the Lord Jesus, before he ascended, gave them a command. And he said, go into all the world. They'd forgotten about that because it was just so great to be together and to have a permanent revival, a permanent glory time just in Jerusalem. And so God sends persecution upon the church at the hands of Paul and others like him. And it says that the whole church was scattered. 
All that was left was the 12 apostles. The rest of them were scattered throughout the world. And you find them in Rome, and you find them in different places. And as Paul journeys around, he finds little groups of Christians here and there and everywhere. And uh, he, uh, he establishes them into local churches and so on. And so there's a Christian dispersion. And so that maybe, uh, maybe when he says he's writing to the dispersion, maybe he's writing to the Christian dispersion. Well, having said all of that and taken up half my time saying all of that, the bottom line is it doesn't matter. Because here is what I came to understand he is writing about. He is writing to you and to me who are believers. And we are dispersed among the nations. And so we are, if you are born again, you are part of the diaspora. We are spread throughout the nations. But we are spread... And... and then he uses that word pilgrim. And that's really what I want to focus on. That you are pilgrims, sojourners, strangers. How many here this morning were not born in Australia? Looks like almost the majority. So you, you, you probably understand what it means to be a stranger to be a foreigner, to not really belong. In the old days, and they, they've changed it recently, I don't remember when they changed it, but I remember the first time I went to America, when you land at uh, the airport, and you go through customs, uh, or immigration rather, you go through immigration, and, and they still have, all, all, all airports have, have a place where citizens go through, and then where everybody else goes through. And where everybody else goes through, it used to say, aliens. <laughs> and so, it made you feel very welcome. You're an alien. You don't belong here. And so you get to get into a long line and with only one officer at the front, so it's going to take forever. But if you're an American citizen, there's uh, lots of help and it's quick and you get through on the other side. So they don't, nobody likes foreigners. And we have a, we, we have a word, which in, in South Africa is a very big word, it's not so big elsewhere, but the word is xenophobia. Xenophobia. Xeno means strangers. Phobia is a fear of strangers. And so we all have xenophobia to some extent or the other. We will never admit to it. Because when you admit to it, you're admitting to racism. And of course, none of us are racist. But we all are, all are a little bit. Because we are comfortable with people who are like us. Those who are Afrikaans will understand the term ons mensa. Our people. People who are part of my culture, my language. And it's natural. I, I don't, you know, I think that, you know, in our political correctness today, we, we, we go overboard and we, 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 we feel ashamed. Uh, and of course, we don't discriminate against others. 
But it's natural for us to have a natural affinity for people who are, who are like us and who share our language and share our history and share our culture and, and, and our, our diet and, uh, and, and those kinds of things. It's a natural thing. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, except when we exclude others and we say, well, we're only going to have fellowship or relationships with people who are the same as us. So, so, so Peter's writing, and he's writing to pilgrims, people who are aliens, strangers, foreigners, temporary sojourners, and when I went to America for, uh, f- for several years, I think five years, I had what everybody knows as a green card. And a green card is a residency permit. In other words, I was allowed to live in America, but I was not an American. And so I had certain privileges. I could work and I could live there and I could travel in and out, but I couldn't vote. And if I put one foot wrong... They would put me on the airplane back to where I came from. And so he is writing to people like that. People who are strangers, who are temporary residents in a place where they do not belong. So the question then is, how or who specifically, how do we then, if we are Christians and we are of the dispersion, how are we then pilgrims? How are we then strangers, sojourners, aliens, whatever word you want to use? And the problem, the question I need to try and answer this morning is, are we indeed like that? Are we strangers, pilgrims, sojourners, aliens? Now, I asked the question earlier, how many were not born in Australia? If you were born in Australia... You are a Australian. That that's, that's, uh, takes a bit of thinking, eh? That's, uh, you're an Australian. Now, I have, and since being in America, I've been there for just over 15 years, I now have American citizenship. I actually have dual citizenship, but it doesn't matter. I have American citizenship. Am I an American? Legally, do I sound like an American? No. Well, you don't know me well enough, but my traditions are not American. My values are not American. My history is not American. My culture is not American. I am a South African. I will never be an American. Why will I never be an American? Because I was not born an American. You see, now, I'm not making any political statements here, so don't worry, you can relax. But only those who are really born in a country are naturally citizens or not just citizens, because I don't want to get this legal thing, but, but, but on, are, are, are people of that, of that nation. Everyone else is a stranger and a foreigner, and will always be. Even if you have legal citizenship, 
Your, remember Peter, he, he denies the Lord Jesus and the young girl comes and she says, but you're one of them. And Peter says, no, I'm not one of them. And she says, I can hear by your accent. Your speech betrays you. I can hear by your accent, you're a Galilean. You're not from here. And folk, our speech betrays us. And so we can learn and we can be assimilated into a society. But I don't think, and maybe some of you have been living outside of your own homeland, whether it's India or South Africa or wherever it is, and you've been living out for a long time, and you may say, well, you know, I feel like, a, like an Aussie. But I suspect that you will never fully feel like an Aussie. Your children, if they are born here, they will. So the issue of where you are born really determines what you will be for the rest of your life. And so Peter then is writing to people who are strangers because they are not born where they live. Okay? But now here's the problem. Why are they strangers? Why are they not where they were born? Well, he answers the question, and stay with me because this is just a little, this, the one place where this gets a little tricky and you've got to follow. But verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. He has begotten us again. Where do we get that idea of being begotten again in the New Testament? Hmm? Born again. John chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And so he is using the same idea here. Some people say, oh, you know, this idea of being born again is it's unique to John 3. It doesn't appear elsewhere. Here it is in Peter, and it appears several times in Peter. We are born again. And when we are born again, into what country are we born again? Heaven. We are born into a homeland, and I'm going to come back to that word. We are born into a homeland which is called heaven. And so you don't, you see, here's the difference. You can get Australian citizenship or American citizenship by going through a legal process. You cannot get citizenship to heaven by going through a process. There is no naturalization process in order to become a citizen of heaven. The only way you can become a citizen of heaven is to be born into heaven. Now you can begin to see where this is going. Now I have to ask you the next question. I mentioned to you that I have dual citizenship. And in fact, as soon as I go back to L.A., and the big thing I'm looking forward to when I get back is the first Saturday, I go to the consulate to vote in the South African elections. I still have that privilege because I'm a citizen of South Africa, but I also get to vote in American elections. Now, here's the problem. I am born again. So now I have triple citizenship. 
right? Wrong. I have one citizenship. You see, both America and South Africa allow me to legally have citizenship of two nations. But in order to become a citizen of heaven, I need to be born again. And part of that process of being born again is I have to die to the old life. I have to die to who I used to be. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. All things have become new. And folk, here's the thing that many Christians don't get, don't understand, is we don't have dual citizenship. We don't get to be a citizen of, of heaven and a citizen of Australia or of South, South Africa or wherever. You can only, if you're a citizen of heaven, you only have one citizenship. Now understand from a political point of view, I'm not saying that we don't live here, that we don't fulfill our civic responsibilities. I just told you I'm going back to vote as soon as I, because it just happens to be that Saturday. Uh, I, I do my jury duty. That if, I, if I get called up uh, to do that in America, I fulfill, I pay my taxes. I do all of those things that are required of me as a citizen of America. But my citizenship is not, an, I'm not an American. I'm not a South African. Or you are not an Australian if you're born again. Because our citizenship is in heaven. And here's the thing. For that reason, we are strangers in this world. We are strangers and foreigners and pilgrims in this world. And just like many of you and, and of us have had difficulties in fitting into a different culture, a different society. The true Christian does not fit into this world. And that's the letter of Peter. And so Peter speaks about persecution. And again, they will argue about what, you know, is this persecution against the church? What is he talking about? In the book of Corinthians, he says, what fellowship does light and darkness have? What fellowship does light and darkness have? We are in this world, but we are not of this world. If we are true citizens of heaven, we will not fit in. And the world will not accept us. Now, here's the problem. The modern thinking amongst churches and Christians and preachers is that we must fit in. We must adapt to this world. And so we want to behave like the world. We want to act like the world. We want to speak like the world. We want to look like the world. Because the, the, the philosophy is that if I can do that, then, then I can relate to them and they can relate to me. And so preachers get tattoos and use the F-bomb in the pulpit and uh, do all sorts of crazy things because they're trying to say, we're just like everybody else. Folk, if you are born again, you are not like everybody else. You are a citizen of heaven. You're a child of God. And you, you, you fellowship, the light and darkness cannot fellowship. Do not have a relationship. Now, I'm not preaching isolationism. I'm not saying that we must not uh, reach out to the world. I reach out to the world. And I make a conscious effort to do so. Because I'm a full-time preacher, I don't have unsaved friends. 
I don't have unsaved family. And so I have to make an effort to make contact with unbelievers. And for that reason, I belong to two clubs related to crafts that I do. And one of the clubs is made up of pretty rough characters because we make knives. Something I've been doing for 30 years. Knife makers are rough guys. And I'm a member of the Knife Makers Association. Not so that I can learn to make knives, but so that I can preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that relationship only goes so far. When I go to those meetings, they know I'm different. They change their language when they speak to me. Not me changing my language to speak to them. You see, we, as Christians, we, we don't want to stand out. We don't want to look different. We, we don't want to seem to be otherwise. But if we have truly been touched by the message of the gospel, we are different. And we do stand out. And any attempt to hide our true identity is a denial of the Lord Jesus. You remember Peter. No, I'm not one of them. And what does Peter do? He begins to curse, swear, just to prove that he's not one of them. And focus Christians, many times we are tempted to compromise what we believe just so that we can fit in, just so we can belong. Because here's the problem. Everyone, Paul says, who will live godly lives, who will live godly, will suffer persecution. And we say, well, Australia is a free country. America has got freedom of religion. We, 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 folk, if, if we are living the lives we ought to, the world will hate us because it rebukes them for their immorality. You see, Christians want to get on this bandwagon about fighting, and uh, I was speaking with Brother John before, uh, uh, fighting abortion, fighting homosexuality. Of course, we're against all of those kinds of things. But then the world looks at us and they say, well, you, 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 you look just like us. But if we are living the lives that we ought to, if we are living as true strangers and pilgrims, not touching the things of this world, the world will recognize that we are different, and our difference will rebuke them. Why did they hate Jesus? Why did the Pharisees call for his crucifixion? Because just Jesus, by his life, proved how fake they were, proved how empty their doctrine was, proved that their legalism wasn't able to give life, and they hated him for that. You see, when you put the real against the false, the false becomes evident. In Los Angeles, one of the big things that they struggle with there is, uh, is um, counterfeit goods. And we have a whole area in downtown L.A., called Santee Avenue, and people go down there, and you can buy Gucci handbags and uh, uh, 
uh, I don't know all the, all the fancy names, handbags and shoes and all sorts of things, you know, with all these fancy brand names. And, and I wouldn't know the difference between the two. But I tell you what, that most of us would probably, if you put the genuine one and the fake one next to each other, you'd, you'd say, no, no, they're, they're not the same. There's a difference. Now the question is that when we put you and your colleagues, your friends, your neighbors together, is there a difference? Is there a reality? Now, Peter's not the only one who speaks about this. The writer to the Hebrews also deals with that. And um, let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. And in Hebrews 11, in this particular passage, I think that he has particularly uh, has Abraham as, uh, uh, in mind. But obviously he's referring to all of those heroes of faith. Hebrews 11 verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They saw the promises. What were the promises? Now, I don't have time this morning to... I would need a few weeks to deal with that. But if you go down in, in 1 Peter and you've dealt with that with Pastor John, he has borne us again to a, number one, living hope. Number two, to an inheritance. Number three, to a salvation. Those are the promises. The hope of the resurrection. The inheritance of a heavenly city. Those are the things that they, these Old Testament saints looked forward to. And it says they embraced those things. And what he is saying is that in embracing those things, they let go of these things. The worldly things. You can't embrace heaven and embrace this world at the same time. And they said, no, 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 we're citizens of heaven. Our inheritance is in heaven. Verse 3, I think, of 1 Peter 1. And we're embracing those things. And because we've embraced heaven, we're prepared to confess we don't belong here. We don't belong here. Now, Frank, here's the problem, is that so many Christians seem to, be belong, to belong here. They're more comfortable in the world than they are in the church. I know that we're, we're late this morning. But you know, I, I'm going to finish in, a, in about another two hours. <laughs> and by then, many will say, well, you know, this is, this is just too much. You know, a two, three-hour service? Wow. And yet we can sit in the movie house for three hours with no problem. We can go to a cricket match for five days. But if the preacher goes five minutes over the hour, it's, 
What have we embraced? Where are we comfortable? And you know, it's become so bad that the church now has to look increasingly like the world in order to make people feel comfortable in the church. And so you go to churches today and they look more like a discotheque than they look like a church. Because that's where people feel comfortable. They need the smoke and the lights and the black walls and and, and all of those kinds of things because that's the environment they're uncomfortable in. Look, we've got it the wrong way around. We're embracing heaven. And I'm not saying the church needs to be a dead place. Obviously not. But they embraced them and confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Verse 14. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. Most of Africa, most of South America, and you guys all see the news of America and people coming in from South America through Mexico trying to get into America. I I would dare to say that 90% of the citizens of the whole of South America and 90% of all of Africa are looking for a homeland. They reject their own homeland and they want a homeland in America or in England or Europe or somewhere else. They're looking. Moving all the time, hoping to find that place where everything is right. Where there's justice and righteousness and work and food and all the kinds of things that they want. And they're wasting their time. Because you'll never find it here on this earth. Our homeland is in heaven in which righteousness dwells. The only place you will find a righteous government is in heaven. The only place you will not find corruption. And in fact, Peter deals with that. To an inheritance incorruptible is in heaven. And these Old Testament saints recognized that. And they said, we're looking for a homeland. We have our eyes fixed upon that, that homeland that God has prepared for us. And you know, when, when, before I deal with the next verse, Abraham We say, well, Abraham, you know, he lived in tents. He was a nomad. No, Abraham was not a nomad. Abraham came out of civilized cities. Ur of the Chaldees and Haran were well-established cities with stone buildings. Houses were two- and three-story buildings. They had libraries. They had gymnasiums. They had sewage systems. Toilets with running water. Many of the houses had running water in the houses. And Abraham turns his back on all of that and he goes and lives in a tent for a hundred years. And we say, well, Abraham, you, you, know, you, you, know, you, you obviously like camping. Why don't you build a house? And remember, Abraham is living in the land of promise, the land that God had promised to him. Why doesn't Abraham build a house? Couldn't he afford it? Abraham was very rich. He didn't even have to build a house. He could conquer for himself a whole city. Remember at one stage he takes on four kings. Now we understand they were not kings like the king of England, but they were four uh, chieftains, chiefs of tribes. And he takes on four of them and he he, he wins and beats them. And, And he could have taken their cities and built himself a great city. 
And Abraham dies, and how much does he possess at the end of his at the end of his life? How much land does he... Because remember the word inheritance that you find in, in, in Peter there has to do with land. How much land does, does, Paul, does Abraham possess at the end of his life? He owns a hole in the ground. A hole in the ground. He buys a little plot in which to bury his family. That's all he has. And he said, well, Abraham, you know, you need a sense of permanence. You need to establish yourself. But why does Abraham not establish himself? Why does he not build himself a house? Why does he not build himself a city? Because he's looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. He's looking for the new Jerusalem. And for a hundred years he lives as a stranger and a, and a pilgrim in the land that God had promised to him because he says, I'm not going to settle here. I'm looking for that city, the new Jerusalem, because it has foundations and its builder and maker is God. Can we live a hundred years as strangers and pilgrims looking for that city? And then verse 15, And truly, if they'd called to mind that country from which they'd come out, they would have had opportunity to return. And he has two things in mind, and I'm going to try and move as fast as I can here. He has two things in mind. One is Israel. Remember, God is taking them out of Egypt, and He's taking them to the promised land. But when they start journeying, what do they say? We want to go back to Egypt. See, he says, they will, they, because if they, if they brought to remembrance, if they called to mind that country from which they'd come out, they would have had opportunity to return. And they say, we remember the leeks and the garlics and the onions and the cucumbers that we ate in Egypt. We want to go back there. And folk, Christians get tired of the way and say, it's... it's you know, and, and of course, promised land in that context is the picture of heaven. We, we're just tired of the journey. We want to just settle here. Remember, there, was, uh, there were some of the tribes who didn't want to cross the river because they said, we, we just want to, we're, we're tired of moving. We just want to live here. This is good for us. We're cattle farmers. This is great for us. And they don't get into the land. And then he has someone else in mind. And that someone else is referred to in the third, uh, sorry, the second shortest verse in the Bible. Quickly, what's the second shortest verse? What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus. Jesus wept. What's the second shortest verse in the Bible? One of the most important verses in the Bible. Remember Lot's wife. Second shortest verse in the Bible. Remember Lot's wife. Why must we remember Lot's wife? Because she looked back. She called to remembrance the city that she had come out of. And she turns back. Remember Lot's wife. And he's contrasting Abraham to Lot, literally in this passage, by, by inference. And he is saying Abraham was looking for that city, and he kept his eyes on that city, and he never looked back, and he never compromised. But Lot's wife looked back. And then he says in verse 16, But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. 
Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. To the strangers of the dispersion, are we living as strangers in this world? Or have we settled? Have we been assimilated into this world? Or are we looking for a heavenly city? Amen.